Father, thank you for the coming of Christ. And thank you for the day when Christ will come again. We pray that you would open our hearts to your word, to your spirit. As we think once again about the coming of Christ. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. I suspect that when you got into your vehicle this morning, if you did, or other days when you, when you get into your vehicle, you might not have thought all that much about this, this amazing machine that you were climbing into. I would guess that most of us probably don't spend a lot of time when we get into our vehicles thinking about how the engine works and how the brakes work and the axles and the electronics and the the computer system. We just get in and go. Full disclosure, when I got in my vehicle this morning, I didn't think a thing about it. Just got in, turned the key, pulled out, came down here. And that's a typical day. I rarely ever think about those things. And you know, we, I think we do the same thing with most of the things in our lives. You walk into a room, you flip the switch. Most of us aren't thinking, huh, I wonder how that electricity works. We just expect the light to come on. And the only time we really think about the electricity working is when it doesn't. You stand in front of the sink and you turn the handle and you expect water to come out. But I suspect most of us don't think to ourselves, I wonder how that water gets to my house. I wonder how it goes through the pipes and how it gets heated. We just turn it on. The only time we think about that stuff is when we turn the handle and nothing happens. And I sometimes wonder if we don't do the same thing about the incarnation. We, we think about Christmas so much. It's so much a part of our lives, whether even for people who aren't in the church, Christmas is a part of their life. But for those of us in the church, we think about it, we're, we're engaged with it, we talk about it, we sing it, we do all of these things every year. But I wonder how much time we take to actually stop and ponder what this is all about. I think that might be one of, the, one of the motivations, one of the reasons for Charles Wesley penning this Christmas carol that we're looking at today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He wrote it about a year after his, his uh, renewal experience with God. He wrote it as a Christmas hymn, as you might well imagine. But when he wrote it, it... It was a little bit different than we have it now. The original first couple of lines, and you might want to pull out your hymnal, and uh, I think it's hymn 117. I didn't print the words this week, but you can see them there. It originally started, Hark how the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. And the welkin is the vast expanse of the sky, an old English term for the sky, the, uh, you know, the, the, what we see above us, and he's talking about the night when the angels sing to the shepherds. And uh, Wesley, who um, wrote, probably probably wrote more hymns than anybody else in the history of the church, more than 6,500 hymns, 
uh, wrote this one, one of his earlier ones. And you can imagine if you write 6,500 hymns, some of them are going to be really good and some of them not so much. And if you look through his hymns, you can see that. I mean, you know, you've got to have a few that don't quite make it after that many. But the other thing about Wesley's hymns is that they are so deeply theological. Probably as much as any hymn writer in our hymnal, Wesley wrote theology. But this original song was a little bit different. And uh, George Whitfield, one of his close friends and associates, they were in, he and uh, Charles and George and John were all in school together. And they, they learned together, they had experiences together. Uh, Whitfield loved to tweak Wesley's hymns. It did not make Wesley happy. In fact, he would not sing Whitfield's version of this hymn any point in his life. He always sang his original words. And, it, and this is a hymn that Whitfield didn't do a lot to. He tweaked a few things, changed the opening line. But the problem for Wesley was that uh, Wesley, uh, John, and Charles were Arminian theologically, and Whitfield was a Calvinist. And so Wesley always assumed that Whitfield changed the, two, the words in order to sneak some Calvinism into his Wesleyan hymns. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was his, that was his concern. But they remained friends uh, to their dying days. But I actually think in this case, probably what Whitfield did may have improved it a little bit. At least made it more understandable, more easier to sing. At the heart of this hymn is the idea that God has come in human flesh. On the night that the angels sing to the shepherds, they sing, Peace on earth, goodwill to all people, because unto you a Savior is born. There is in this hymn and in our, in our theology of Christmas, at the heart of it is the incarnation. That God became a human being. It is what we read in John's gospel, in the opening prologue of John's gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He begins the second verse of this hymn, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. I love that image, Christ, the highest heaven adored. You can see the angels worshiping him. It's the picture that Paul paints in Philippians chapter 2. Of how, on that day when all, every, every being in heaven and earth and under the earth will worship Jesus. This is who he is. This is our, this is our Savior. He is God in flesh. And when you get later on in that second verse, you find, I think, one of the most profound theological lines in all of Christian hymnody. It's one of those lines that I'm not sure we ever get to the end of pondering. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Wow. Jesus comes, not just, he's not just sort of the, the scraps of heaven that God may send to us. He is God incarnate. He comes to reveal the nature of God, the heart of God, everything about who God is. 
in the Old Testament, when God appears to human beings, it is so frightening. He's so holy and powerful and almighty. They cannot even look upon him. But John writes in the last verse of his prologue, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Paul writes in in, uh, Colossians, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And when people looked at Jesus, when Peter looked at Jesus, when Mark looked at Jesus, when when, uh, John looked at Jesus, when Mary looked at Jesus... Looking at God in flesh. And so many people miss that. So many people miss him. They can't see it. But he comes to show us not only the nature of God, but the heart of God. This is who God is. What he really wants to convey to us is that God wants relationship with us. God wants to fix what is broken in us. God wants to heal us. God wants to give peace to us, grace to us. He wants to transform us. And so he begins this song echoing the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. What tore us apart was not something God did. It was what we did. And when he talks about God and sinners reconciled, we all realize that's talking about all of us, right? That's all of us. It's the whole world. And Paul says, God in Christ has come to reconcile us with God. To give us peace to transform our hearts, to make us new, to make us holy, to set us free from the guilt and the burden and the power of sin. God has come to restore us to relationship with him. It's one of the great themes, not only of Wesley's hymns, but of scripture. Jesus comes in flesh to be the savior of the world. And to be the savior of the world means to reconcile us with God. To bridge the gap that our sin creates. This is why he comes. One of the things that Wesley emphasizes in this hymn is not just the incarnation, as powerful as that is in and of itself. But he takes time to emphasize the means of the incarnation. There are lots of stories in mythology and and other religions of of God's taking on human appearance. This is the only story where God takes on human appearance by being a baby. By being born into this world in the vulnerability of a baby. 
It's one thing for us to say God took on flesh. God became human. God could have easily done that by just simply appearing as a 30-year-old man coming onto the scene. But God wants to be like us. And so he becomes one of us. You see it emphasized throughout not only this hymn, as you get to the final three lines, and every one of them begins with the word born. But it's really at the heart of the nativity story in Matthew and Luke. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. Mary became pregnant. An angel appeared to Joseph and said, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. The angel says to Mary, You will be with child and give birth to a son. And while the shepherds were there in Bethlehem, or while Mary and Joseph were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. And the angels declared to the shepherds, The Savior has been born today in Bethlehem. You will find a baby. And then as the King James has it, they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. We used to always giggle when we heard that because it sounded like all three of them were lying in the manger. There's hardly anything in this world more vulnerable than a baby. I was watching Hannah hold her little boy during the service. No babies... They can't do anything for themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't go find food. They can't, they have to be taught to nurse. They have to, they have to be gradually introduced to solid food. They can't protect themselves. They can't crawl, much less walk. I mean, they're the most vulnerable beings in our homes. And the Almighty God, of which John says, created all things, and of whom the book of Revelation says he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, became a little baby. And if it weren't for Mary and Joseph... He wouldn't have survived. I don't think you can get to the end of pondering that. A little baby. God enters the world just like you do. And just like you did and you did and you did and I did. It's a phenomenal thing to ponder. And Wesley keeps reminding us He's born. But I also love the other line in the second verse that I think is imperative for us to think about. We have such a skewed view of God. You know, we most people tend to see God as a God who judges, a God who is harsh. A God who wants to 
There's a killjoy, a God who wants to remove all the excitement and fun of life. A God who only does what he has to do because that's the image we have of all, all the other things in this world that we end up worshiping. It's how all the other nations, all the other peoples of the world think of their gods. And so Wesley not only says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. He says, pleased as man with men to dwell. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Now, I, I like, I like turning the, the older language that's gender exclusive into more gender inclusive language. But that's one of those phrases that just... I think might need to just be kept as it is. Because it just, it just, poetically, it just fits. Pleased as man with men to dwell. God doesn't do this because he has to. Jesus doesn't come because the Father is forcing him or threatening him. Or he's got his arm behind his back. He comes enthusiastically, joyfully. It gives him great pleasure to come and to be among us, despite all of the limitations that his coming means for him. I mean, he comes into this world and he deals with all the same stuff that you and I deal with. Aches and pains. And I'm sure in the carpenter shop, he smashed his finger more than once and cut himself. And his heart was broken by people he trusted. He was betrayed. He goes through all the things that you and I go through. And he did it willingly and joyfully. As Paul writes to the Colossians, the the father was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. It brings joy to him. You think about the things in your life that bring joy to you. For me right now in my life, it's spending time with my granddaughter. That's never a burden. In fact, I'm always trying to find ways to, you know, stop by their house, even if I don't really need to. It's a joy. It's a pleasure. You, many of you know that. And Jesus comes and it brings him this kind of pleasure and joy, even though it means suffering and pain and heartache, even though Christmas means God goes through difficult, hard pain. He does it joyfully because he loves us. I keep thinking about that discussion that the the church fathers had in the fourth century they were trying to figure out the theology of the church. And, and one of the questions that they were debating was if, if human beings had never sinned, would Jesus have still come? And they debated that issue for a number of days and finally came to the conclusion that nobody really knows because Scripture doesn't address it. But there were a lot of them who said, yeah, I think he would have. And the reasoning was because Sin or no sin, God likes us and he wants to be close to us. It's not a burden for the word to become flesh. It is a joy to do this in order to transform us and to heal us and to bring peace and the answers to our yearning. 
and for the whole world. And the question in front of us as we ponder all of this is, what do we do about it? How do we respond to this? I think Wesley gives us some hints in this hymn. It begins simply by saying, Hark, the herald angels sing. Pay attention. Listen up. Open your ears. Open your eyes. One of the things that, one of the reasons why the the religious leaders and others miss Jesus is because they aren't paying attention. Their minds aren't on God. Their hearts aren't on God. There's not an openness to God. And so they miss him. And I suspect you and I miss him far too often because we're just so focused on ourselves. We're so focused on our own lives and our own problems that we can't see him when he's right there in front of us. So pay attention. But then you get to the third verse and there's this apex, this climax as you start that third verse. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. That's what the people would say to Caesar. We worship you. Everything in our lives is about you. And this is what it means to embrace the incarnation. It's not just to think about it, but it's to open our hearts to the coming of Christ into our hearts, our lives, every part of our being, every moment of every day. And worship is not just Sunday, as important as it is. Worship's not just when we're reading the scriptures or praying, as important as that is. It's every moment of every day. And to worship God as he calls us to is to want God's words to be our words. It's it's to want everything in our heart to reflect the image of God. It is wanting every attitude to be the attitude of God. It's wanting every action to be the action of God. It is wanting all of our lives to be impacted by the coming of Christ. We are so grateful For what God has done. We refuse to take it for granted. We refuse to allow familiarity. To breed entitlement. But instead we give thanks every day. Every moment. For what God has done for us. In the sending of his son. In the vulnerability of a baby. In love and grace. That's why what we're really wanting to end up doing as we think through these carols is to commit ourselves to live what we sing. So that when we sing about the incarnation, we sing with gratitude. And we sing with a desire to worship and praise God, not only with our mouths, but with every part of our being. And that's my prayer for us. So, Holy Father, we pray that you will so fill our minds with the truths of your word, and particularly what we see in this great hymn of your servant, that it would become how we live and think and feel and act. With the grace of Christ. Amen. Wesley wrote his hymn in 1739. In 1840, a hundred years later, Felix Mendelssohn 
wrote the tune that we typically sing with this carol. He didn't write it for this carol. In fact, he didn't write, it was not connected with any words. He wrote it for the 400th anniversary of the invention of the printing press and a big celebration of that. And he said at the time, I, you know, he, he said, I like this tune. I feel like it's inspired. He said, I hope someone puts words to it, but I'm pretty sure sacred text would never work with this song. Fifteen years later, a musician named William Cummings said, no, I disagree. And he took the, this text of Wesley's that had been sung to other tunes, among them, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. He, he had written it for, sung to other tunes, and he took that text, and he took Mendelssohn's tune, and he realized they fit together really well. And since about 1855... This is the tune that's been sung with these words. So I want to invite you to stand. And this is a song. Last week, you know, Come, O Come, Emmanuel is kind of meditative. This is a hymn that, as we think about it, is celebrative. We, we rejoice. We give thanks. We worship. This one who has come to us in human flesh.